This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Welcome to another episode of LifeWords Q&A. G'day, it's Andrew Morris with you and David Ray over the next 15 to 20 minutes answering your questions about life and faith. I love this because uh, uh, just working out your relationship with God and issues revolving around faith and living it out. It's so exciting. It's great. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, three questions coming up. Let's start with question number one. Our listener asks, have you got any suggestions for a church whose numbers and income are falling and which may not exist if this continues to go on? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Good question. And I'll tell you what, it's a very common question. Um, Very, very common. Lots of churches are in that situation. We sometimes can think, well, we look at some of the very, very big, 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 numerically big churches and think, wow, things are going well. But there's a whole lot more churches that are not like that. Um, Look, um, it seems to me that some big churches are getting bigger while others are dying slowly. And I think this is a sort of cycle. See, what can happen is this. A church loses people. And as a result, it loses a bit of critical mass, and so fewer people come to it. And so you've got this vicious cycle, the downward spiral. Um, And it's sad for leaders and for congregation. Um, However, it doesn't mean that less numbers or income stifles ministry. Um, The fact that you might lose numbers or income doesn't mean to say that you can't still be a church. Um, But church might have to take different shapes. You see, speaking of someone who's been employed by churches over the years, most income in the church goes to supporting paid staff. Um, You're not going to save much money in the church by switching off the lights or whatever like that or, or, you know, um, buying a bit of dishwasher or something. Most of the money goes on staff. And I I would think, I would at least pose the question, does the church need all those paid staff? Because I know of churches that I think you've got too many paid staff. Uh, because the philosophy seems to be that the more paid staff we put on, the more opportunities of ministry we have and the more we grow. That can happen in some cases, but it doesn't always. And so we sometimes put on staff um, and pay all this money and then find that um, you know we've got fewer people, so there's fewer people trying to... Um, maintain more expensive people. Um, um, then again, of course, the counter-argument to that is, well, once we reduce staff, we reduce ministry opportunities, and so we lose more people and more income. So I, I'm well aware of that issue as well. Now, of course, we also have to face the uncomfortable possibility that the churches in question here, from our questioner, might indeed die or at least assume a, a different, smaller, voluntary form. See, I'd put the question at least without actually providing an answer, but is it God's will for all our existing churches to go on surviving? Yeah. And, and I, I'm not convinced that it is. I mean, I, I think there's some churches that probably need to die, not because they're bad or that God is displeased with them, not, nothing to do with that, but God might be saying, your time's up. Or, no, don't survive in this form. Um transform yourself into something else. Now, you know, I don't know what there's something else might be, but I think the church, a church that's in this situation of decline needs to be very prayerful about it. Um, you see, and, and and what usually happens in churches, I know this, that, that they think, ah, well, we'll, we'll try to become more attractive. Um, we'll jazz things up a bit. We'll try to provide things to attract people uh, to the building. And, and, and oh, we'll, we'll try to change the church service time or something like that. Now, all those things might well be, be good and proper things to do, but I am not now sure 
that that is actually going to lead to a lot of church growth. Because I think the uncomfortable truth we're facing in our society today is that people are not just de-churched, that is, they've stopped going to church, but there's a whole generation of people who have never, ever, ever, ever been to church. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? Like, I I remember years ago, uh, we were saying that, well, we're, we're almost getting to the point where every Australian's been reached and is aware of Christ and stuff, but now we're at you know, polar opposites. Yeah. Polar opposites, yeah. We, we, we haven't even begun. And the question there is, well, how do you reach those unchurched people? Well, the point is that many of us involved in what we might call the institutional church automatically go to a default mode there as saying, well, well, let's do something to our local church in order that it might attract more people. Now, nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with it at all. You've got, you, I think you, you have to do something there. But I'm just a little bit sceptical of whether or not doing all that stuff is actually going to build up numbers in your church. Yeah, what, you might get five five new people, ten new people, you, you, you but could. how much have you expended on, on buildings and all that stuff? Exactly. And many, many churches now, for example, run playtimes for young families uh, during the week, yep. ESL classes for um, people. Now, in many of the churches I'm aware of, that that has not led to any growth in the church at all. I'm not saying they shouldn't do those things because they're valuable community services. They're showing the love of Christ to people. So, yes, do more of them, not less of them. But we are not finding that these are natural ways of of, of transforming our churches from being fairly static to flourishing. Now, you might be thinking, well, am I working around to what the real answer is? No, I honestly do not know. All I know is that, we, yes, we need to have things that support the community, and yes, our church gatherings are to be as attractive and as flourishing and as encouraging as possible. Yes, all that. But honestly, I think if, if, if I were in that position, I would only say, well, Lord, there's, say, 50 people in this church and it's struggling. Um, I wouldn't be saying, how on earth can we reach all the other people around about us? I'd start by concentrating on those 50. I'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd be asking those people to love God, to love one another sacrificially, to provide the context within which um, that, that church can be a gracious, loving community because the, Jesus does say, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Uh, and if that church is a gracious, loving, supportive community, I just wonder how organically from that we can reach out into our local communities and have the church grow but I wonder um, what growth can be possible here I know there's some big churches that are getting bigger and so on but that's not my point my point is that while those churches might be getting bigger others are going smaller so the net growth to the kingdom is not really that great and I think our statistics are showing that um, that yeah some churches might say well wow we've doubled our numbers in the last five years good on you you you're doing well, but it's not necessarily all through conversion growth. Um, so we've got that problem. Without a mighty work of the Holy Spirit, I don't think we're going to get massive numerical increases across the board. You will get it locally, sometimes through very, very good leadership, through a good combination of demographics and the power of the Spirit and all that sort of thing. But most churches are going to just be looking at, I think, some small growth through the love people have for one another in that local community um but but we have got to get used to the fact that we are not now 
interwoven into the fabric of normal Australian society. We are a marginalised fringe group, and as such, we've got to find better ways of being that, being a loving, gracious fringe group, and somehow or other um, showing that our communal life is so attractive that other people will want to join us. You're listening to Life Words Q&A with David Ray. I hope that was helpful. Um, and David uh, sort of answered your question to some extent. Okay, uh, we've got a second question, David. Uh, this is Life Words Q&A. You can subscribe through the Hope website if you've got a question. Like uh, you've just heard, you can email David, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. David, our second question is, Jesus says that it's very hard for a rich person to get to heaven. Doesn't that make it hard for all of us since we're, well, we're comparatively rich? It is. Um, now, just a bit of context there. Jesus said what he said in a culture where it was assumed being rich was being favoured by God. Many of the Jewish religious leaders of his time saw material wealth as an automatic sign of blessing from God. Well, what Jesus was doing was pretty typical. He turned that teaching on its head. And instead of saying riches, oh, yes, that's a sign of God's blessing, he said there are hazards of salvation. Now, this is so because wealthy people, and we're generalising here, wealthy people tend to be self-sufficient, um, relying on their own resources. They've often got where they were by their resources. And so, so, so they tend to be self-sufficient. And also, having that wealth and success, they tend to become consumed by it. And again, I'm generalising. Not all are like that. The material riches of this world blind them to the possibilities of eternal life because this world is good. This world is what they've made it to be. And um, while there are many generous rich people, it can be also that wealth makes us greedy for more and more inclined to protect our privileges rather than bless the poor. And again, again, there always are exceptions. But sadly, um, wealth can generate greed, self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, and also a focus on this present world. Now, of course, Jesus said that rich people can get to heaven, but only with God's help rather than a reliance on their wealth and status. He's not saying rich people don't go to heaven. He's saying it's very hard, and it's very hard for the reasons that I've already um, stipulated there. But, you know, it's it's true for all people. Um, all of us can... It's hard for any of us to get to heaven in a way because we've got to forego our own goodness and so on and so on. Um, we, we should know that the Bible doesn't condemn wealth as such. As the question suggests, we're, we're all relatively rich. You see, if God didn't bless us with riches, um, much of Christian life and church would fall on its face because we need money. Um, unless unless there are rich Christians out there, this radio station couldn't survive. Yep. Um, and um, you'd be out of a job. And in my job, I'd be out of a job. Uh, so, so yes, 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 we need we need wealth there. But but um, Jesus isn't anti-wealth. He's just saying in his context, don't rely on it for salvation. If you think you're rich and therefore you'll get to heaven, no, you won't. He said your riches may well be a snare to you. So the issue is not how much wealth we have. That's not the issue. But, but how have we earned it? You've got to ask yourself that question. How, have I earned this wealth honestly or dishonestly? Um, and what do we do with it? What are we doing with our wealth? Are we greedy and wanting more? Are we, is it making us self-sufficient and proud? Or are we being generous with it and thankful for it? So I think that's the issue. It's okay to be rich, as the questioner says. We are comparatively rich anyway. But, hey, don't rely on those riches. I think what yeah what you're saying, David, uh, 
is, you know, I guess it's the rich person or just the average Joe like yourself or me, um, it's just acknowledging that, that the money that we earn, the, the, the things that we've been given are not necessarily ours but are blessings from God and therefore we're a, a conduit, if you like, to pass that on where we see needs and stuff like that. We can off, uh, So I'm thinking, David, often we can use money uh, as a substitute to actually be quiet and just reflect mm. on yes, deeper, right. deeper heart issues. What, what you're um, posing there, Andrew, is, 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 is a tension we've got that that on the one hand, um, you know, I've bought some things recently um, that have given me great pleasure and great satisfaction and enhanced my enjoyment of life, and I feel absolutely no guilt about it at all um, because I've got money and it's quite okay to spend money on something um, for what we might call an in inverted commas selfish reasons uh, that I'm, I'm I'm able to enjoy this particular bit of technology, I'm able to enjoy that particular thing. Um, Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But as you're touching on there, it, it can become a snare um, because if you are finding ultimate meaning in that technology or that gadget or that thing that you bought, then that's a problem. Or if you are spending excessive amounts of money on that uh, that prevents you from being generous, then that's a problem. So Christians should never go around feeling guilty about spending money. Um, you know, it's it's nice to have a nice holiday. It's, it's nice to have the occasional luxury. It's nice to do that. I think God doesn't want us to be penny pinchers. So there is that balance between, yes, money is such a good thing that can get us good and enjoyable things, but always keep it in proportion. Always be thankful to God. And I think quite literally be thankful to God. Thank you, God, that I've been able to buy that thing uh, or do that thing thank you that I may, you've given me the money to do it um, rather than just sort of taking it all for granted so it's a question of balance you see what might be right for you you might spend five hundred dollars on something and it's a perfectly valid expenditure for me it might not be a valid expenditure at all it might be just sheer extravagance and self-indulgence and each Christian has to discern for themselves very very carefully um, is my expenditure of money something that it, it, it enhances life? Is it in proportion? Um, you see, some Christians, I think, go to an extreme of thinking, well, I can't possibly buy anything for myself or have any luxuries when there's so many starving children throughout the world. Well, I think that's a little bit unrealistic uh, because um, the problem of starving children in the world goes far beyond your your sort of household expenditure. But at the same time, yes, you don't want to spend so much on your own consumer self-indulgence that you've got no space left over for being generous to the starving children of the world. So balance. Yep. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're enjoying our weekly podcasts. We've got our final question for today, David. I seem to have read in the Bible that God changes his mind. Is that true? Because I thought he was changeless. Uh, it, it, it's one of these lovely answers, yes and no. <laughs> it's a, he is changeless in his essential nature. Um, just imagine if you believed in God and then believed he would stop loving you or that he changed his mind about forgiving a penitent sinner. Uh, that would be hopeless. Um, imagine if, if you believed in a God who could stop being good. Um God doesn't lie. He doesn't contradict himself. If this were not so, we could never trust him. So, so in that sense, God is changeless. But there are descriptions in the Bible, as the questioner says, of him changing his mind. I would 
really put these in the category of human attempts to describe what seems to be going on. There's a theological term for it. It's called anthropomorphism. And all it is is attributing human characteristics to God. You know, the arms of God are underneath you and all that sort of thing. Now, um, for instance, he, he says he'll punish a sinful nation in the Old Testament, and then he doesn't do so. Now, has he changed his mind? Not really. It looks as though he's changed his mind. But but the original promise to punish was, in fact, conditional on that nation not turning back to him. In other words, he says, I am going to punish you. But then they repent. Oh, well, in that case, you've repented. I will not punish you. Now, he's not changing his mind. He's, he's, he's rather saying, I'm giving you human humans freedom, and I'm freely responding to how you exercise that freedom. I will punish that nation if they choose to disobey me. But then again, if they choose to obey me, I will not I will not punish them. So he's not changing his mind. He's acting according to his character, but his actions might appear to change because he is responding to how humans are exercising their freedom. He's constantly acting according to his character, forgiving the penitent and punishing the impenitent. But but it looks as though he's changing his mind, but in fact, human freedom has worked out in such a way that God looks as though he has changed his mind, but in fact, he's actually acting consistently according to his character. Now, there's another little related issue to that, though, Andrew, that, that God does seem to change his mind as a result of our praying to him. That happened when I think it was Abram praying for um, Lot in the episode of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and this is a bit of a mystery to me. Um, it seems that God's plans do take into account our prayers. I'm not sure how I could describe, whether I could anyone could ever describe, whether my prayers have changed God's decisions somewhere along the line. I, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't resolve that. All I seem to see in the scriptures is that God says, pray because your prayers do matter. And in the case of Abraham and Lot and so on, uh, Abraham's intercession did seem to, I, I wouldn't say change God's mind, but influence the way God was going to act. And so it seems to me that when I pray, my prayers, while they won't change God's mind, they will have some sort of effect on how he acts but I can't explain that further. All I do is, well, God wants me to pray and I do it and I'll see what happens. <laughs> it's just the mystery. We ought to just well, sit we, in look, it. Look, I think with all these things and with this whole Q&A thing that we're doing, um, we, we have to often just uh, accept the fact that we don't know all the answers. Yeah. Um, years ago, I would never even looked at this sort of stuff because I'd be scared stiff of not having the answers. But I don't think we have to know all the answers. I think we have to explore ways of looking at things. But in the end, there are so many things that I don't understand about God. Years ago, I thought that the older I got and the wiser I got, the more I'd know about God. That's not true at all. Uh, because I'm I'm always more now deeply aware of the mysteries and what I don't know. But um, that's okay because wisdom is all about knowing what you don't know. Uh, and being humble and I think sometimes we've got to say God I wouldn't have a clue for example how my prayers affect your acting but you've told me to pray and I'm going to pray and I think that they could influence your actions but then again sometimes they don't 
but I'm going to go on praying anyway. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Life Words Q&A, Andrew Morris, David Ray. Hope you've enjoyed it. And if you want to enjoy more episodes with David and myself, you can go back uh, in the previous uh, back catalogue, if you like, at hope1032.com.au. Just look for Life Words Q&A and you'll find them. Also, you can subscribe to Life Words through the iTunes store. It's pretty easy. Till next time, we wish you all the very best. Thanks for listening. Start your day with Life Words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.